Father God, strengthen us and bless us on our Lenten journey. Help us to understand your word and find in it food for the journey. And bless us as we approach the great celebration of your resurrection. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. My question for you today is, how is your Lent going? If you had to rate it on a scale of 1 to 10, I wonder what you'd give it. You might have kept some of your resolutions, stayed away from chocolate and alcohol and coffee maybe, maybe spent some extra time in prayer or good deeds. I haven't done very well myself, I must confess. I would give myself quite a low mark this year. But of course, uh, there's a catch-22 in Lent and disciplines, because the better you do, the more prone you are to become insufferable and proud. But we're in the home stretch. Next week is Passion Sunday, and then Holy Week, and we're almost there. So what is Lent? We have 40 days to grin and bear it, to show our devotion so we can get back to our normal life after Easter We have ingenious ways, don't we, of squirming around our Lenten disciplines or justifying it. Do you know the story of the Irishman who moved to a new village in Ireland? And he went to the bar and he ordered three drinks. You might think of that whatever you've given up, coffee or... And the the next day he came back and he ordered three drinks again. And this caused the bartender to wonder why he was ordering three drinks and only three drinks and... uh, soon became the talk of the village. So one day, um, the bartender got up his courage and he said, Excuse me, sir, uh, the folks around here are wondering why you always order three drinks. The man said, Tis odd, isn't it? Well, you see, I have two brothers. One went to America and one went to Australia. And we promised each other that we would always order an extra two drinks whenever we drank as a way of keeping up the family bond. Well, one day, the man comes in and orders two drinks. And of course, the bartender has a heavy heart. He assumes what's happened. Surely one of the brothers has died. And the bartender approaches the man and said, on behalf of the village, we want to extend our condolences. It appears probably that one of your two brothers has died. And the man ponders for a moment. He says, well, you'd be happy to hear that my two brothers are alive and well. It's just that I myself have decided to give up drinking for Lent. (laughs) Well, what is Lent? Is it an isolated interlude, an experiment, a trial run to see if we can do it? Or is it something more like a running start? Whenever I'm asked for my social security number, I always have to take a run at it. I can never remember the last four numbers. So I have to start at the beginning, six, three, one, eight. I hope that Lent is something like that. It's a self-examination with a view to incorporating it into our life after Easter, participating in the disciplines and celebrations so that when we get to the great Easter, we can carry it on. We might not want to keep on giving up chocolate, but hopefully we're incorporating things in our, in our Lenten discipline that help us day by day. The gospel reading at the beginning of Lent for Ash Wednesday is the gospel where Jesus says, when you pray, when you give alms, when you fast. And hopefully Lent is not a single season of doing our best, but rather 
we could see it as a way of trying to develop through prayer a life of connection to God that carries on. Through our almsgiving, developing a life of generosity. And through our fasting, developing a life of freedom from our appetites. Don't you love that collect at the beginning, praying to God who alone can order the unruly wills and affections of us. That resonates very deeply with me. I understand how unruly my will is, how inappropriate some of my affections are. And so I like to think of Lent then as a rehearsing for the resurrection, trying to put into place things that will carry on and help me celebrate the resurrection more fully and live it more authentically. Let's turn to Psalm 51. The psalm appointed for today was the psalm that we used at the beginning of Lent, and I thought it might be a a nice framework uh, to look at our scriptures today. Uh, One of the commentaries calls Psalm 51 the psalm of all psalms. Of course, it's David's response to his own unruly will and appetite as he has an affair with Bathsheba, uh, which goes very, very wrong. So Psalm, if you're following in your bulletin, Psalm 51 begins, Have mercy on me, O God, blot out my offenses. It begins then with specific, heartfelt, articulate pleas that God would help him. And he needs God's help. He understands that he needs God to wash him and cleanse him. And so it begins, do we have that same feeling towards our own sin? He moves on quite quickly to a focus on the sin, to a focus on himself. He says in verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. What do you know this morning? King David was very aware of where he had gone wrong. It's very interesting parallel in our Old Testament reading. If you cast your eyes back just to the Old Testament reading in Jeremiah, where it says in verse 34, No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. Well, how is it that they will know the Lord? The next phrase explains it. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Sin is then a blinding, a clouding, a deception that affects our sight and our understanding of who we are. We are not the sin that we do. Some people within the church, I think, would try to say the first thing to be said about a human being is that they are sinful in need of God's redemption. The third, first thing, of course, to be said about us is we're made in the image of God, to made it to be in relationship with him. And the sin in our life clouds that, distracts us, separates us. One of the commentators calls it a treason. So how do we know who we are? We know who we are as God pushes away, cleanses our sin, so we see who we truly are. As it says in verse 7, for behold, You look for truth deep within me. The truth of who you are is deep within you, not the sin that encrusts our lives on the outside. And I and will make me understand wisdom secretly. God has a good opinion of us. We are he is able to see the truth in us. He is able to teach us wisdom. 
we are able to live it out in our lives. Sin does not define you. God defines who you are. And then in verse 8, it goes back to some more specific requests of a sort of negative nature with a vision to who he will become. Look at verse 8. Purge me from my sin and I will be pure. The vision then is how we lead a life that's pure. Wash me and I shall be clean. How do we live a life before God that's clean? Verse 9, make me hear of joy and gladness that the body you have broken may rejoice. Yes, we may go through a time of despondency or brokenness, but keeping the vision before us of who we can become. Verse 10, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He then turns from sort of the negative focus on the sin to a more deliberate focus on who he will become. Verse 11, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Give me the joy of your saving help again and sustain me with your bountiful spirit. We are made for a relationship with God. And at the end of this, of looking at the sin being dealt with, of entering back into that relationship with God, a miraculous thing to create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit. It makes you think of the parable of the prodigal son, of this son who is separated from his father. And finally, when it says he comes to himself, he says, my father's servants have more than I do. I will go back. And he says, I am not worthy to be called your son. But you remember the first word he uses as he declares he's not worthy to be his son? He says, Father, Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. He still clings to the relationship of love. Well, it's a lovely psalm, isn't it? But you know, it doesn't end there. I'm going to ask you to take your prayer book out and let's look at the ending of it on page 657. Just briefly, page 657, because I want to show you that the psalm wasn't intended just to leave us with a good feeling, to have a positive worship experience of having our sin dealt with, restoring our relationship with God. But it drives us out to mission, to do something about it. If we have been forgiven, then what should we do in this world? And 14 goes on. The rest of the psalm says two things, what we should say and what we should do. In verse 14, I shall teach your ways to the wicked and sinners shall return to me. Do you see the repetition of teach? He says God will teach him his ways and now he says I will teach your ways to the wicked. The word in the Greek is the lawless or those who have broken the law. Is it because that they didn't know the law or they knew the law and they broke it? I'd like to assume that they didn't know it. Just like in the gospel reading, the Greek who came to the disciples, I would like to see Jesus. And Jesus te- and the disciples bring him to Jesus. Deliver me from my death, O God, and my tongue shall sing of your righteousness, O God, of my salvation. Open my lips and my mouth shall proclaim your praise. What are we saying? Whether it's speaking to our family or our neighbor or blogging or sending a tweet or writing a story, We need to articulate the hope that's in us. I went to see the movie Cinderella uh, a couple nights ago. How many have seen Cinderella? 
How many um, are planning to see it but haven't seen it yet? Okay, spoiler alert, close your ears. You know the story. <laughs> so at the end, so, uh, so I went to see the story. It was great, great. I loved it. The next day I'm on the internet and I read a blog and it says Cinderella uses the F word. What? Did I miss that? Of course, we all know what the popular culture means by the F word. But as I read the blog, it built it up and it said at the end, when Cinderella is identified as the love of the prince and the king and he, they have the glass zipper on her foot and they declare their love and commitment to each other, they're leaving Cinderella's house and the wicked stepmother is walking down the stairs. And she turns and looks at the stepmother and says, not what you would expect. She says, I forgive you. Looks her in the eyes. I forgive you. And in that moment, you see Cinderella freed from the animosity and the hatred that would have been there, that, that lust for revenge. And it says that Cinderella's stepmother runs away with somebody else. And I thought, what a description of sin. She chooses her sin. She chooses to run away and become separated from the kingdom. So we need to use that word more often. Wouldn't it be great if people started saying the F word, knowing you referred to forgiveness? Well, I've gone on. I had a couple of other examples. One was, uh, uh, and I can talk to you about it later, a friend of mine is a, a head of the Bible Society in Egypt. And after the atrocity killing the Egyptians in Libya, they produced within 36 hours a little pamphlet uh, two rows by the sea and they talked about forgiveness and hope and perspective produced 1.65 million of these pamphlets and they went like wildfire the biggest mass distribution of Christian literature I think in the history of Egypt and even Muslims were giving it to Christians saying have you seen this because he said the act was a bringing together of Muslims caring for Christians and Christians having hope. And then the second part of the, uh, the psalm, which goes down in verse 19 and 20, I'll just wrap up. Be favorable and gracious to Zion and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. If our forgiveness means anything, we need to take that message out and do something about it. Things like dress for success. I love that. Some of uh, people, some St. Francis are going out next week, this coming week. To, to look at human trafficking that is going on in Houston, the modern-day slavery. What do we do about that? We must do something. And so we start by praying, informing ourselves, just like the psalm says. It leads us, our forgiveness, our hope, our celebration must lead us to be a blessing to the world. And so our commerce with God during Lent should lead us to a deeper, fuller celebration of the resurrection and to embrace our mission of grace and love to the world that so desperately needs God's love and grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.